Last week, one of the nice things about going through a book of the Bible verse by verse is that if we come across a text that's very convicting for someone, you can't be mad at the pastor because, well, you know, it's in the text. And he told you he was going to preach that eventually, right? Well, the flip side of that is sometimes you come across a passage that maybe the pastor doesn't really want to preach. And now he's got to, right? That's only fair. And you, you come across a concept that's very hard to explain. Or maybe it's something, you know, I've not heard a lot of sermons on this text. And maybe it's kind of unfamiliar territory, and i got to work extra hard to make sure I get it all right. And So there's a little catch-22 for it, um, to it, and I hope you can appreciate that. But we're continuing through the Gospel of Mark, and Mark's emphasis throughout his Gospel account is that Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, is the Christ, the Son of the living God. That Jesus came into the world, he was announcing the kingdom of God, he was healing the sick, he was casting out demons, and he died for our sins, only to rise from the grave victorious and ascend to the Father, uh, the Father's right hand. Traditionally, Mark, or John Mark, as he's called in the book of Acts, he is uh, writing this from the city of Rome, around possibly as early as the mid to late 40s, or early as the 60s, not the 1940s, 1960s, much, much earlier, the actual 40s and 60s. And he bases much of it off the preaching and the teaching of the Apostle Paul, uh, sorry, the Apostle Peter. At least that's what church tradition tells us. And Mark writes his gospel, if you've been paying attention as we follow through, he writes his gospel in such a way that anybody can pick it up and understand what's going on. The Jewish person who picks it up is going to pick it up and understand a lot of it. But for the Greek or the, or the Gentile person, the non-Jewish person, Mark does this neat thing where, and in, in the English translations, it's in parentheses. He explains Jewish customs. And he explains things that, that was just accepted as normal within the Jewish culture that somebody else may not understand or see. We've seen this the past couple of weeks. For Mark, it's very imperative that anybody be able to hear and receive the good news of Jesus. For Mark, he wants to make sure that though Jesus came to Israel first, he did not come exclusively for the nation of Israel, but for the whole world. And so we begin reading today this story, which which has to do with a Gentile, a a non-Israelite woman. And we begin in verse 24. It says, And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter, out of her daughter. And he said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement, you may go your way, the demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. This is a very powerful portion of Scripture. There needs to be more sermons on this. I don't know if that's my microphone popping or or what that is, but... Some people 
more modern thinkers, they, uh, they try to twist this passage and make it mean something it doesn't, even to the point they are now trying to teach that Jesus was being racist towards this woman. A few of you have sent me the video from Mike Winger. Mike Winger's got some pretty good stuff, but he's discussing the progressive church movement, and he mentions a guy by the name of Brandon Robinson. Brandon Robinson blew up on TikTok, manipulating and twisting this very passage. He teaches that Jesus is racist in this moment, and by the end of the story, Jesus gets woke and realizes that he's being racist. That is not at all what's happening in this passage, by the way. He insinuates that Jesus is calling this woman a dog as a racist term to cut her down and basically tell her she's not worth a miracle. She's not worth a healing. But then Jesus realizes his mistake, and so he, he, he repents, basically, and gives the woman what she wants. Again, that is not what happens in this passage. So we're going to unpack it today. This story actually has very little to do with race and much more to do with a person's faith, an individual's faith. In fact, I'd suggest it has to do with a faith that moves us closer to God. And that's the main idea. This is your your Facebook quote of the week or whatever you want to call it. Before we ask God to move, we have to be willing to move towards God. I'll say that again if you're taking notes. Before we move, we ask God to move, before we ask God to move, we have to be willing to move towards God. You know, so often we want a faith that moves a mountain, but what we really need is a faith that touches the heart of God. A faith that moves us closer to Him. Faith that God gets excited about is what we see in this passage today. In fact, Matthew's account, and Matthew and Mark are the only two Gospels who record this, the only two instances in all of Scripture you'll find this story. Matthew has Jesus say to her, O woman, great is your faith, be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. You understand, this woman found herself at the mercy of God, and she falls at his feet in faith, begging him to do something that will change her circumstances. Now today, a lot of people feel this way. A lot of people feel a lot of stress and brokenness, and hurt. And your circumstances may not be the same as this woman, but the hurt or the pain that you carry is very real to you as much as her pain and her hurt were real to her. And you're at the mercy of God because he's the only one with the power to change the situation. And you've gone to him in prayer time and time again, and nothing seems to budge, nothing seems to change. There's something, though, within this passage that we have to understand, we have to wrap our minds around this, that there is something within the character of Christ going into this story that reveals the character of God that we must get. Like I said, Mark is pointing to the fact Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Christ. He is the Son of God. He is God. And if that's the case, then Christ himself must exhibit attributes or characteristics of God, right? If he's God, then he needs to do things God does. And we've seen that. Jesus calms the storm. Jesus heals the blind. He cleanses the lepers and those who are seen as unclean. He's exhibited the attributes of God we typically think about, the things we we normally like. But today we see an attribute of God on display that if we blink, we miss it. And it's incredibly powerful. We see God's sovereignty within Christ. And if we miss it, we are missing one of the most beautiful stories in all of the Gospels. 
It's important that we understand this this morning because while we may be looking at the Syrophoenician woman and we may be learning from her, the focus is always to be on Christ. The focus is always to be looking at him and towards him and and what we understand about him. And if he is God, as John 1.1 tells us, then we should see within Jesus the unchanging character of God. To say that our faith or our prayer changes God or at least changes his mind, actually that would that'd be in contradiction to his word. God knows all things from beginning to end. Scripture makes this clear in Revelation 22.13 and Ephesians 1.4. And by the way, none of this is in your notes this morning, so just bear with me on this. 2 Samuel 22.31 says, This God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. God's plans are perfect. There is no upgrade to him. There is no change to him. Isaiah 46, 9 through 11 tells us that his plans will always prevail. Now, when we get into this concept and we really start to try to understand the sovereignty of God, so often we begin to ask about this aspect of his nature. We quickly might think about Genesis 6, 6, when God, quote unquote, I'm using quotation fingers for those just listening to this this morning, when God repents for creating mankind. Or Genesis 32, when God wants to destroy Israel and Moses prays and God changes his mind. So before we go further, we have to understand this concept of God. And this is heavy. This is kind of a big deal. In Hebrew, in Genesis 6, it's the first time this word appears. It's the word nacham. And it's used and often translated as repent or change one's mind. And that's what repentance is. But this particular Hebrew word also means sorrow or to bring comfort. So when God regrets in Genesis 6-6, it's not that he's having second thoughts about mankind. It's that his heart is grieved by the wickedness of mankind's sin. So does that make sense? Okay, we're going to move on. Moses, though, this becomes problematic. This becomes a hang-up for a lot of people. Exodus 32 I'm going to paraphrase that story for you this morning, but basically, God is giving Moses all the laws. He's giving him the Ten Commandments and the priestly garments and all of that. Meanwhile, the people are at the base of the mountain. They're telling Aaron, make us a new God. Make us, some, make us an idol to worship. How many of you remember that story? Show of hands. Yeah, you've all seen the Charlton Heston movie, right? That happened, Okay. So God says basically, and this is the Jeff Williams translation, so bear with me. He tells Moses, you better get down there. They're making idols, but I'm going to deal with them. I'm going to cut them off, and I'm going to make a great nation out of you as God is talking to Moses. This is about verses 10 and 11 of Exodus 32. Now, were God to actually do this, were God to follow through, he would not be breaking his covenant with Abraham. There'd be nothing wrong that God is doing in carrying this out. He wouldn't be breaking his covenant with Jacob. But Moses does something very powerful here. Moses intercedes. Moses prays. He says, Lord, why does your anger burn? They're your people. Now, God had said to Moses, you get down and fix your people. And Moses says, no, 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 they're your people. Don't put that on me. No, he didn't say that. They're your people. You know them. You rescued them. You are the one who brought them out of Egypt. If you destroy them, it's going to look bad on you, won't it? That's that's basically Moses' prayer. Now, Scripture says, Exodus 32, 14, the Lord relented from the disaster that had 
that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Now, often we read this, and we come away, and, and we say, well, you know, it's, it's like God just looked at Moses and said, gee, Moses, you're so right. Gosh, what was I thinking? I'm such a silly God. That's not what's happened here. Instead, what we're missing is the fact that Moses has just aligned his heart with the heart of God. He has appealed to God's character. He says, I know you. I know how you think. I know what you're up to. And, and you're, you're not that God. You're not the one who's going to do that. We would be better reading that as God replying and saying, now you know, Moses. Now you know that I have the right person in place to lead these people. Because every point going forward in the story of the Hebrew people throughout the wilderness, when they sin, when they rebel, what is Moses going to do? He's going to fall on his face before God and intercede on their behalf. He's going to come before God and he's going to appeal to him for these people. And the message is very clear. God is saying, I need an intercessor for my people. I need someone who knows my heart, who will speak to the people for me. And right now, Moses, you're that guy. But we understand the connection, don't we? That eventually there's going to be this person, Jesus of Nazareth, who is going to intercede, according to Hebrews, on behalf of the people. He knew Moses would pray. God knew Moses would want to align his heart to God's heart. Ultimately, by the way, God does punish the people. He does carry it out. All the people except Joshua and Caleb, they all die before they reach the promised land, including Moses. So God is true to his word. But the need for the intercessor, the need for a deliverer is made abundantly clear. Jonah's another example of this. When he goes to Nineveh, they repent, and the Bible says God relents. He does not destroy them. And you know what? Jonah knows that this is going to happen. He gets very angry about it. If you remember the study we did on on Jonah, on Sundays, basically he tells God, see, I knew you would do this. I know the heart of God. God loves. God does not like to be the God of fury. I knew you were the God who would forgive. And I knew they would repent. I just knew it. And then God scolds him for his negative attitude about it. But that's, but that's because he knew God's character, that God wants this people to be saved, to seek his heart. Jeremiah 18.8 gets tossed into this conversation. It reads, And if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns, it turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do it. Again, God is not changing his mind in this passage. He's calling the people to repent. Because when our hearts are aligned with his, the circumstances don't lead us. He does. So if prayer doesn't change God, then the question becomes, Well, then why do we pray? Well, first and foremost, because he tells us to. And secondly, because God delights in our prayers. Jesus told us to pray and not lose heart in Luke 18.1. And 1 John 5 tells us, and this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us and whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. Romans 8.28 People love to quote the first portion of this, but they like to leave out the last few words. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purposes. A prayer offered in faith to God, most of all, will change us. 
It will change our will to his will. It will mold us. It will bend us. And in some cases, yes, it might even break us. But if you notice in our text this morning, Jesus never once looks at this woman and tells her no. Not once does he say no. Absolutely not. Jesus chooses his words very carefully, and he redirects her until finally this woman's faith, her faith, her full heart are on display, and that's when Jesus says, great is your faith. But how does she get there? How does she get to that point? Well, we're going to unpack this this morning. There are three things I want us to see in this Syrophoenician woman and her faith this morning. She had determined humility. She had urgent persistence, and she had a desperate focus. And that's just the introduction to the sermon this morning. So buckle up, okay? Because you got to use a lot of fuel to get off the ground sometimes. Point number one, she had determined humility. We read in verse 24, From there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon, and he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. You understand what Jesus is doing? He is finally finally getting the retreat that he wanted with his disciples. He's been planning this for since the middle of chapter 6 when they got back from their short-term missions trip. He wants to go and unpack it. He wants to talk about it with them. Okay, He wants to, to evaluate them. And, and likely, you also have to remember, Jesus is entering the last year of his life, his earthly uh, ministry. And so he wants to teach them and prepare them for his crucifixion and, and their ministry following his ascension. So he decides to go to this area called Tyre and Sidon. Now, most translations just say Tyre. Some early manuscripts add Sidon. Verse 31 makes it clear that it's in the, the region. And so that's why we're using the ESV today. It kind of combines it all. But to go to the vicinity of Tyre, that's a Gentile region. In the time of Isaiah, this was a city that was built on trade. And the prophet had said their time of destruction was going to come. And we see that all prophesied in Isaiah 23. And there's still some very hard feelings between the Jewish people and the people of Tyre, the people of Sidon. The Jewish historian Josephus describes the Tyrians as notoriously our bitterest enemies. They had a good relationship, by the way, with King Herod, with Herod the Great, but that's not really a good commentary on them. Their economic relationship with those of the Galilean region specifically only seemed to benefit the people of Tyre. But the people of Galilee would have resented Tyre and Sidon. So for Jesus to go there, they might have even been offended. Basically, it's like if you really, if, if you really hate going to Taco Bell and your spouse says, I'm going to eat at Taco Bell, you can go with me or not. Well, you know I'm not going to go to Taco Bell. Well, obviously, you're going to be eating alone, right? Right? I'm the only one who likes Taco Bell and leaves his wife at home. Okay, moving on. <laughs> My wife hears that. I'm going to, never mind. Uh, <laughs> so they would, have, they would have resented this. This is a deliberate trip. This is what Jesus is doing, purposefully trying to get away from the crowd. But just like previous attempts, Jesus is not going to be left alone for very long. And this also tells us that his fame has reached far beyond the Galilean region. If we stop for just a second, we've covered his popularity for quite a bit. But think of this just for a moment of what this really means for Jesus. He has to go where nobody else wants to go for him just to get a break. Those of you who are 
parents, you've got kids, and you constantly get bombarded with questions and problems, and especially you moms, you hear the mom, 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 until finally you snap and say, go ask your dad. You kind of could relate to what Jesus is going through here. He's not getting a break. He cannot get away from people. He's had his difficulty getting away from them. And even whenever he tries, his heart still breaks for them because they're so pitiful. It says he sees them as he has compassion on them because they're like sheep without a shepherd. And in our text today, Jesus purposefully tries to get away from the people of Israel. He wants to get alone with his disciples and talk to them. And so he enters someone else's house in a totally different region. Now, we're not told whose house this is. It could be a a cousin of a disciple's, a friend of a friend. We're, We're never told. But Jesus and the 12, they go in just hoping for maybe a day or two of peace. And even though Jesus doesn't seem to want to be found, as we see, this woman will find Jesus regardless. That takes determination. She's going to search for him. She's going to have to look for Jesus. Remember, when Jesus doesn't want to be found, he's hard to find. In chapter 1, he slips away in in the night, and Simon and the disciples go to look for him. It says, Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, everyone is looking for you. They had to search for him. They had to look for him until they found him. But they seek him with determination. And if we seek him, we will find him. Jeremiah tells us the character of God. Jeremiah 29, 13, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. In the same way, we see this mother doing this very thing in verse 25. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now this is common for Mark, this but immediately. We've seen this over and over and over. Mark is a very fast-paced gospel. He wants to keep your attention. He wants to keep you moving. And this is one of those Greek words. It's, it's the Greek word euthys. And it means at once, straight away. In other words, as soon as Jesus got to town, this lady hears about it. It's, like, it's almost like she's looking for someone who can help. She's trying to find someone who can help her situation get better. Again, Matthew's account has her come crying and asking Jesus to do something. And it appears like Jesus just ignores her. Matthew says, Matthew 15, 23, but he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, send her away, for she is crying out after us. In other words, Jesus, send her away. Her crying is getting awkward. It's embarrassing, and she's kind of annoying us. But Jesus doesn't say anything. Mark's account tells us she comes and falls directly at Jesus' feet. This is a sign of humility. She shows her determination in finding him, but she displays her humility in her posture. She falls at his feet. Why? Because her daughter had an unclean spirit. Because her daughter had a demon. And we're not told what what this daughter was suffering through, what was happening to her. We're not told what abuses she suffered. Does she cut herself like the garrison demoniac? Does she throw herself on the ground or in the fire and have seizures like like another possessed child we'll see later. We're not told. But whatever's happening scares her mother. It terrifies her. It drives her to seek help. Now, she was not a Jewish person. She likely went to physicians. Being a Greek, that would be the logical thing to do. She would go and look to the doctors. But once they, felt, once they realized it was a spiritual issue and not a, not a physical ailment, 
they would probably send her down to the temple priests. And there were idols in that region, so she would go and seek them out. But then she hears about this Jewish rabbi who gets to town, this carpenter who's not afraid to touch lepers, who speaks to the unclean spirits, and they flee from his presence. Ah, this guy might be the one to help me. So she says to herself, my deliverer has come. She doesn't go to Jesus and demand. She doesn't go to Jesus and declare or name and claim her way out of the problem. She goes to Jesus and simply falls upon her feet, or falls at his feet. And in her determination, she's not going to get up until Jesus hears her pleas, until he promises to do something. In the same way, we have to ask, are we determined like that? Are we determined to fall at the feet of the Savior and pray until he changes the situation or changes us? There's a very popular song that came out a few years ago. It says, Lord, move in a way that I've never seen before because there's a mountain in the way and a lock on the door. I'm drifting away. Waves are crashing on the shore. So, Lord, move or move me. This woman understands this. And in her humility, she determines to move toward God, to get on her knees before Christ and cry out, Lord, move. In fact, in Matthew's account, he writes, but she came and knelt before him saying, Lord, help me. Lord, help me. I don't know of many more prayers that can be more powerful than those three words. If you remember when Peter was drowning in Matthew 14, 30, and he, he sees the wind and the waves, and he begins to slip under the water, he, he cries out, Lord, save me. Some of the most powerful prayers are short. They're very humble, but they're very determined. Lord, help me. Lord, save me. Lord, you know. Some of the most powerful times of prayer that I've ever had, I was on my face before the Lord saying just that. Lord, you know. I don't need to go into detail. You're sovereign. You know. You know. You know my hurt. You know my pain. You know the emptiness I feel inside. You, you know my situation. You know that I can't fix this. But I know that you know and you can deal with it. It's those powerful little prayers where God sees our, our brokenness and he begins to heal, he begins to move, he begins to reshape us in the image of his son and he begins to do powerful things within us and through us and in the world around us. That's why James tells us, is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord and the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Prayer that is determined, prayer that is humble, that's a prayer that moves us closer to the heart of God. And I'll say it again, before we ask God to move, we have to be willing to move towards God. You notice she has an urgent persistence. Verse 26, Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. She comes to Jesus and begs him. It's the Greek word erota. And it means she appeals to him. She begs or she prays to him. There's this urgency about her demand. It's almost as if she says, Lord, I've gone to everyone else. You're the only one who can help me. Time is running out. I'm afraid of what the Spirit might do to my daughter. So please, please, 
please, and her voice just trails off into sobs and weeping at his feet. The Syrophoenician Gentiles, by the way, were a people who had abandoned the God of Israel and worshipped idols. And when it came to the women of this region specifically, Israel had received pretty much a mixed bag, so to speak. For example, it was a Phoenician woman from Sidon who had petitioned Elijah on behalf of her son who had died. So the prophet cries out to the Lord. The Lord raised the boy from the dead. That's in 1 Kings 17. But on the other hand, there was this wicked queen named Jezebel, who was also a Phoenician woman. She was the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and she caused her husband, Ahab, and all of Israel to sin, to worship the false god Baal. 1 Kings 16.33 says, Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. And who was it that led Ahab? Ahab was led by his wife, this Phoenician woman, Jezebel. But then there's this woman. And she's a Syrophoenician. And that distinguishes both the time and the, the region she's from. Greek culture had influenced Syria after Alexander the Great's conquest. Many Greeks settle in this area of Tyre and Sidon. So the woman is, by Mark's account, she's both Syrian, Phoenician, and Greek. So she's a Greek, Syrophoenician woman. Greeks and Phoenicians were idolaters. So when I say this woman sought out other remedies like doctors and priests, that's probably just a drop in the bucket. She's likely also gone to magicians, oracles, witches, necromancers, soothsayers. In fact, Jesus' reply to her insinuates this. When he says to her, verse 27, let the children be fed first for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Well, to, to some people believe that Jesus is quoting a proverb she might have been familiar with. Uh, we're not really told that. But Jesus clarifies, I'm going to heal differently than the way people you've went to are going to heal. That's what he's saying. You've gone, you're, you're not part of this. You've gone to the magicians. You've gone to these other people. You've done these other things. I don't do what they do. That's in essence what he's saying here. In Matthew 15, 24, he answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So Jesus wants her to demonstrate her faith to the one true God, not idols. The word Jesus uses for dogs, by the way, and I have to clear this up since I mentioned it, it's the Greek word kunerion. And the actual form is kunerios. And what it means in this tense is little dogs or even puppies. They're domesticated animals, friendly dogs. This is not a racist term, and we'll see that. We do see a different word that is meant harshly, the more insulting use of the word dog, for instance, in Matthew 7, 6, Jesus says, do not give dogs what is holy. Do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. That's the same word Paul uses in Philippians 3, 2. He says, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. And Paul and Jesus are both referring not just to the Gentiles, but to also Jewish people who, it's not a racist word, but these were the people who would make a mockery of what they were given when they were given the gospel. It's the Greek word kuyan, which means a vicious dog, a wild, untamed beast. They're using that to describe the combative nature of people who fully reject the gospel. If Jesus wanted to use the most insulting word of this woman for this woman, he would have called her a kuyan, not kunarion. Instead, he's not insulting her. He's speaking tenderly to her. He's speaking lovingly to her. 
He's not rejecting her because she's a woman. He's not rejecting her because of her race. He's not rejecting her at all. He's just redirecting her because of her faith. The woman doesn't move. She doesn't flinch. She hears Jesus' words, and they don't sting her. She's part Greek. She understands. She's used to the custom of owning pets, having dogs as pets. She persists. She doesn't give up. You see, a lot of people, they come to Jesus and they they have their list of demands. Jesus, you've got to heal so-and-so. Jesus, you need to give me more money. Jesus, I need this promotion at work. You've got to fix this problem, fix that problem. And when he doesn't do exactly what they want him to do, they move on to the next thing. They try something else. And truth be told, this woman's likely done that up until this point. She's gone to one doctor after another, or she's gone to a, a priest or a some other spiritual guidance. They didn't have any special powers. They didn't have what Jesus had. And if you remember from earlier on in this series, if someone in this day and age, if they wanted to cast out a demon, what would they do? They'd normally appeal to an even bigger demon. So she wasn't getting any farther ahead. She's spinning her tires this whole time. And so she runs out of options and she runs to this rabbi from Galilee. For her, this is the last, last straw. If he cannot heal her daughter, nobody can. Something within this mother breaks. She hurries to him, and she, as she runs, she basically would probably be telling herself, I'm not going to budge until I get an answer. I'm not moving until he gives me hope. With urgent persistence, she throws herself at the feet of the only hope she has and begs, and she weeps. Have you ever... Have you ever prayed that way? God, you have to do something or I will lose everything. God, move or I'm going to die. I'm going to lose what matters to me. You pray the words of the psalmist, Psalm 13:3. Consider and answer me, O Lord my God, light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Psalm 5, 1 and 2, give ear to my words, O Lord, consider my groaning, give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God, for to you do I pray. Psalm 119, 153, look on my affliction and deliver me, for I do not forget your law. The prophets prayed this way and it shook nations. The apostles prayed this way and it tore down prisons. So the question remains, are we willing to pray desperately? Before we ask God to move, we have to be willing to move towards God. And that's what she has. She has a desperate focus. Verse 28. But she answered him, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. This is another clue. This tells us Jesus is not using a derogatory word. This is the type of dog someone would want within their house that would be okay with them being under the dinner table. It's not a wild dog. It's not a derogatory slang. Her response shines a light on her faith. You know, in all of Scripture... Relatively few people are commended for their faith. Yes, we have a whole chapter, Hebrews 11, right? Faith's Hall of Fame. Who's mentioned in that? Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, Rahab, Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets. That is actually a pretty short list when you think of all the people in the Old Testament. Where's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? They're not mentioned. We like that story, right? Solomon's not mentioned, no Nehemiah, no Ezra, no Ruth. Many more are left out. Yet this woman is commended for her faith. This is what it does, we'll soon see. Initially, when the woman had come, Jesus had been silent. But now, 
He begins his response to her. He says, let the children eat first. Let the children be fed first. Israel must be healed. Israel must first hear the gospel. Israel must first be given a chance. That's the initial meaning, but there's a slight prophetic utterance here that we might miss if we're not careful. Jesus did not first, he didn't, uh, he did first come to Israel. Matthew's account makes that very clear with Jesus saying as much. And if you remember, today is day of Pentecost. And in Acts 1.8, what's Jesus say? You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. In other words, beginning in Israel. And then you'll move out. So Jesus came to Israel first, and then everybody else. This encounter does not change Jesus' mind on the order of the gospel should go forth into the world. But her response shines a light on her depth of faith in Christ. In a sense, basically what has happened is Jesus has said, let the little dogs get the crumbs. And she looks into the eyes of her Savior and she says, you're right, I am a little dog. Can I just get some crumbs? And it's powerful. And it moves the heart of Jesus. Martin Luther says she catches Christ with his own words. The beauty of that is knowing the truth, the sovereignty of Christ, that he understands her and he knows and he wanted her to catch him in those words. He wanted her to trap him. He wanted her to get it, to align her heart with his. This is something that Jesus commends when he says in Matthew eleven twelve, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence and the violent take it by force. The kingdom of heaven is for those like this woman who are willing to spend every moment in pursuit of the kingdom. They are desperate for it. Their focus is solely upon Christ. They run their race with endurance, with their eyes fixed on Christ, the author and perfecter of their faith. Do we desperately pray for anything the way this woman pleads for her daughter? And he said to her, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. Charles Spurgeon, when he was preaching on this passage, he said, the Lord Jesus was charmed with the fair jewel of this woman's faith and watching it and delighting in it, he resolved to turn it around and set it in other lights that the various facets of this priceless diamond might each one flash its brilliance and delight his soul. Initially, when this woman had come, Jesus had been silent, but now I believe he can't contain his excitement. Matthew recounts, he says, oh woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And this daughter, her daughter was healed instantly. Jesus' answer to her pleas is so full of grace. Grace that is clearly not just for those of the house of Israel, but for all people. Everyone can benefit from God's love. The message Jesus sends is simply this, that the priorities does not necessarily mean exclusivity. His love, His grace, His redemption are available only to, not only to those who are Jewish, but for the whole world to experience. In the same way, the cross of Christ is for those who repent and believe upon its purpose. He first came to Israel, but through His cross, His death, His resurrection, all may be delivered. So He sends her on her way, and she, she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. She got what she'd asked for. But she came to Christ determined and humble. Urgent, but persistent. Desperate, but laser-focused. 
Her faith got, at Christ, got Christ's attention. Her faith moved her from a home with a demon to the feet of the Messiah. It brought healing to her daughter and wholeness to her heart. So she moves herself closer to God and God heals her daughter. Before we ask God to move, we have to ask, are we willing to move closer to God? I'm going to move to close. I'm going to dismiss this in a word of prayer in a moment. But again, this is Pentecost Sunday. And I don't know of a better Sunday to discuss prayer. On the day of Pentecost, the disciples were gathered together to pray. They were filled with the Holy Spirit. Their hearts were flooded with God's heart. And what do we see happen? They become united. Everything they owned, they, they shared, and was, everything was in common. Acts chapter 2 tells us. And 3,000 people were added to their number. That's the power of prayer. That's the power of the Holy Spirit and the purpose of the Holy Spirit. Pentecost is a time of harvest. In fact, actually, Pentecost is a harvest festival, like I mentioned before. But it's also a time for prayer, a time for the church to unite together. And if you're here, maybe you're hurting, maybe you're facing desperate circumstances. If you're in urgent need, James tells us to pray together. So I challenge you, find a place away from everyone else in the sanctuary this morning, either at the front, in your seat, maybe just take some time at home later today if you have to go, but time to be an intimate, humble, desperate prayer. Pray focused, pray desperate. Pray persistently, but pray urgently. And pray in humility, but with a determined heart. Pray alone or grab someone and ask them to pray with you, but move closer to Jesus and watch Jesus move in your life. Even if he doesn't move in the way you want, he's not done moving you. So I'm going to ask you to stand this morning. We're going to close in a word of prayer. Father God, we come before you, and Lord, we, we cast ourselves at your feet, and we ask you to hear our prayers, to know our heart, to know our circumstances, know our situations. Lord, you know. You know already. You knew everyone who would hear this message before they, they even got here this morning or, or click play. Father, we just pray right now that your Holy Spirit move within our hearts and draw us closer to your Son. To draw us closer to your heart, Father. Lord, we ask for a, a mighty move of God. Not just within the church, but within the heart of every believer, within the sound of my voice, Father God. That you touch us, that you Raise us up, Lord, that we might be sent out into the field for harvest. Lord, continue to grow us. Pray you give us the heart of a disciple, the heart who says, I want to seek more after Christ. Lord, as we go this week, I pray that we, we challenge our prayers, that we challenge our prayer time, that we seek further after you, that we not be satisfied with just a generic thank you, Lord, for this food, but that we, we pray in a way that, that touches the heart of God. That our faith be on display. Lord, we ask this in the name of your Son, Jesus.